Hello and welcome to the Novel Analyst Podcast. My name is Jed Hearn, author of the upcoming fantasy novella, Fires of the Dead, and typically it is my job on this podcast to analyze stories I love to help you become a better writer. Today's episode is a little bit different though, because I'm interviewing Gabriel Bergmoser, who is one of my favorite authors. Gabriel Bergmoser is a Melbourne-based author and playwright. After starting out in the youth theater scene with his early plays Windmills, Life Without Me, and Hometown, Gabriel completed his Masters of Screenwriting at the Victorian College of the Arts and went on to co-found the independent production company Bidden by Productions. Several of his plays have been published by Australian Plays and can be listened to online. Links to those in the show notes. In 2015, he won the prestigious Sir Peter Ustinov Television Scriptwriting Award for his pilot screenplay based on windmills, and he was flown to the International Emmys in New York to accept. In 2016, his first young adult novel, Boone Shepherd, was published by Belfrog Books. It was later shortlisted for the Reading's Young Adult Prize the day after the sequel, Boone Shepherd's American Adventure, was released. The third book, which is my personal favourite, and I've done a podcast on that before, which I'll link to in the show notes, was Boone Shepherd, The Silhouette, and The Sacrifice, and that came out in 2018. From 2015 to 2018, Gabriel was a regular on the popular podcast Movie Maintenance, which is how I discovered him. And he also wrote audio dramas for the now-defunct spin-off show Movie Maintenance Presents. One of those audio dramas, which I've listened to and love and you should definitely check out, was an adaptation of his play Springsteen, which hit number three on the iTunes Performing Arts charts. In 2019, Gabriel signed a two-book deal with HarperCollins with the first... The Hunted, also known as Sunburnt Country in the UK when it's published, scheduled for publication in July 2020. The film adaptation is currently being developed in a joint production between Stampede Ventures and Vertigo Entertainment in Los Angeles, with Gabrielle writing the screenplay. And now, without further ado, let's get into the interview. Gabe, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me back. So, we first connected when I interviewed you about a year ago on this very podcast. I believe it was September the 1st that that interview was released in 2018. So it's been almost a year since then. How do you think things have changed for you as a writer since then? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with drastically would probably <laughs> be the, the best word for it. Um, when I spoke to you last, uh, the main thing was that um, Boone Shepherd 3 was about to come out. And... You know, I was sort of doing some theatre stuff in the backgrounds, and there, you know, there was there was some other kind of like, you know, incremental potential developments on a few other projects, including you know, Windmills, the one that I've kind of been working on for a long time, and um, and you know, like a couple of other things. But uh, but yeah, since then, um, since then, I've sort of had a fair few life changing developments in a very small space of time. So um, so my book Sunburnt Country, which I believe I was sort of like in a very early stages of kind of kind of working on when I spoke to you last time, at least in, in the form it is currently, uh, that was that has been bought by HarperCollins in a two-book deal, and the film rights have sold to... Well, it, the film rights are being developed... Oh, sorry, the film project is being developed by a... in a joint production between Stampede Ventures, which is the new production company of Greg Silverman, who was the former head of Warner Brothers, and Vertigo Entertainment, who is, uh, that's John Berg and Roy Lee's company, and, you know, they worked on things like It, uh, the Lego movie, um, The Ring, The Grudge, the How to Train Your Dragon films, The Disaster Artist, like a very, a very eclectic kind of mix of, like, a lot of films that I really like a lot. So, um, so yeah, that all kind of happens very quickly 
at the start of the year, and it's only the last couple of weeks that all the announcements have been made and that I can actually talk about it publicly. That's so exciting, man. How do, do you still, like, pinch yourself every day when you wake up just to have had that opportunity? Um, yeah, it's, it's like, to be honest, and I've been saying this to a few people, I don't think any of it has really quite hit home yet. Okay. Um, it's, yeah, it, it's one of those things where, like, because it all kind of happened so fast and like, you know, my, my whole aim over the last year was to, was essentially to sign with the agent who I've since signed with, um, my agent who made this happen. They'd seen some work of mine. They'd been like, you know, it's good, but it's not quite there. It's good, but it's not quite there. Like what else do you have? And, um, and so I was kind of back and forthing with them, but my, you know, my goal was just to sign with them because I knew they were a really good agent. I knew the reputation. Um, I knew that, you know, being with them would be fantastic. And it was kind of, you know, I, I was only just sort of, in the stages of celebrating finally signing with them when everything kind of erupted and it all happened so quickly that there was never like, yeah, there, there was never really a moment where any of it just kind of sunk in. It was just like, you know, being, being grabbed by the seat of the pants and just kind of thrown into this, this like chaotic and crazy new world. And, you know, I mean, it, even just like with the film rights, the film deal, it wasn't until like I think I saw the the Variety and Deadline articles go up last week that I was like, oh, oh, okay, this is this is really happening. And then um and then you know like last night I had dinner with one of the executives from LA who was over in Melbourne and he kind of took me through sort of what the plan is like when they're looking at shooting the talent they want to get attached all of that kind of stuff and I mean you sort of I walked out of that meeting like like somewhere between like grinning and dancing and then <laughs> screaming and running away because like it is, it is kind of, it's one thing when, you know, you're used to as I am to kind of, you know, driving your own projects and to, you know, to working in independent theater and stuff. And, you know, you, you kind of roll your sleeves up and you try to make things happen, but it's not, it's not necessarily a very high stakes thing, you know, because it's, it's down to whether you, you know, the only person who really suffers if it doesn't, if it doesn't work is you. But when you kind of look at, in the in these instances, like the amount of people who are invested in it and who are making it happen, and the amount of money that's going into it, and you realize that so much of it kind of rests on you doing your job and not messing it up terribly, that that is kind of quite terrifying. But um, but it's also like utterly exhilarating to you know to to be able to say these things out loud and to be able to say you know this is this is the world I'm now inhabiting. So so yeah, it's completely mental. But I don't think I'm I don't think I'm you know <laughs> I'm made it to this yet. Okay, <laughs> I'm sure hopefully it'll sink in once the, the movie comes out and it's a massive success. Well, yeah, well, fingers <laughs> crossed. Yeah, How, backing up a bit. So you've been writing since, uh, like, I believe, is it 13? Is that correct? Yeah, um, yeah, consistently since I was about 13. Consistently since 13. Okay, great. How did you manage to keep resilient through all the years of experiencing rejection from whether that's the, the agent you signed with continually sending new projects to them and not getting the response you wanted or just rejection in other aspects of the writing craft. How did you manage to maintain that desire and that passion for writing throughout that? Look, it delusion, I would say, is, <laughs> um, is the most kind of defining the most defining trait I think I've ever had as a writer. And and I think that's not, I mean, I think delusion is not necessarily, it's, it's not the worst kind of trait to have because like if, if we were, if writers, if people who wanted to make it as writers were realistic about their chances or, or knew kind of how hard it would be to, to get, not only to get your work to a standard where it could potentially be published, but to, to manage to convince, you know, 
heavy hitters out there that, that it is worthwhile if, if people were realistic about what that would take, I think most people wouldn't even try. Like, I think if you have to be, you have to be like at least a little bit deluded about your chances of making it as an artist in order to make it as an artist. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying for a second that, you know, like I consider myself as having made it or anything, but, you know, I've kind of entered this sphere now where I'm like, you know, it, it took, it, and, and like, and there are times when that delusion threatens to break, you know, there were like, when I was like 18 or 19, it didn't really matter so much because I was just, you know, I was pumping things out. I was sending it to agents and publishers. I was getting rejection letters. But, you know, in the back of my head, it was always like, you know, you're still young. You're still young and that's fine. And, you know, like I'm still young now, but it, but like I, you know, I think I put this in a play of mine once that like the biggest lie I think anyone ever told me regarding the creative industries was that you get used to rejection because if anything, it's the opposite. Like at first, yeah, you get rejected a few times and it hurts a bit, but you get up and you dust it off. And then when you fast forward like five, six, seven, eight years and you're still getting rejected, that's kind of when when you reach a point where you're like, why am I trying? You know, like what like maybe am I wrong? Am I not as good as I thought? Like, do I have do I actually have something worth pursuing or is this just like a massive fallacy of sunk costs? And like last year, the closest I ever came to just to really giving up would have been like probably September, October last year. And I, I, I was never going to, like I say the closest I ever came, but I just, I, I guess like, you know, it's a, if you're going to look at it in writing terms, it was my all is lost moment where like, you know, within the space of a few weeks, several, several things collapsed. One of which was, you know, um, another rejection from the agent. And, you know, they, they'd always left the door open because, you know, they, they evidently believed that like there was something there, but there was that. And then there was like a, a TV project that, you know, I, I probably was maybe, maybe a bit stupid to think was going to happen, but I kind of had let myself believe it was looking really good. And then there was that rejection. And then there were a couple of other things that all happened within the space of a couple of weeks. And me just sort of lying there staring at the roof, just thinking, honestly, what's the point? And even that feels like a, a stupid thing to think because like, ultimately, you know, like it's, it's, if you set out to be an artist, you can't like, you can't assume that, you know, you, you can't, how do I put this? You can't assume that you've been hard done by because you don't achieve the success you think you deserve because ultimately you are beholden to the, to, to the, to the belief of your audience, but also your publishers, your producers, whatever. And there is nowhere in the rule book of being human that it says people have to take you seriously. Like you have to be good enough to convince them to take you seriously. And that can be really, really hard to get to. So so that kind of makes it a bit tougher because there's really, if, if things kind of fall apart like that, there's there's nothing to get angry at. There's nothing to blame. There's like, there's nothing to even get upset at. It's pointless to get upset. You just sort of like, you just have to get up again and keep going. And I sort of like realized after that point, I was like, well, that's just what I'm going to have to do. And the very next thing I did was that I sent the agent Sunburnt Country, which is now, will be called in Australia, The Hunted. And I sent that to them basically kind of thinking, look, it's completely different to anything else I've sent them. Um, they'll either tell me to go away and never contact them again, or at the very least, it might show them that I I can be diverse. You know, I can write different things. I can explore stuff that isn't is dissimilar to what you've already seen. And to my absolute pleasant surprise, they went for it. And then, you know, but even they said at the time, they're like, look, it's really extreme. It's really violent. It's really out there. Like the bigger publishers probably aren't going to go for it. And then I signed a two-book deal with HarperCollins. So... It's just it just kind of goes to show, you know, that like you can't predict anything and you can't predict like what it is that's going to kind of get you over that line and what it is that's going to change your career and change your life. I mean, you know, I, I had projects in my head that I really thought would be the 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 career makers for me. 
And like I said to a friend of mine after all this happened, I was like, I just, I never thought it would be Sunbird Country. Like it just, I never thought it would be that one. And he just laughed in my face and he was like, dude, I always knew it was going to be Sunburn Country. He's like, it's, it's the most commercial, it's the most original, it's like all of, all this stuff that, you know, I didn't really see. But, but, you know, like it just kind of goes to show that in some ways, like, I think nobody has a worst, in, worse instinct for like the quality of what a writer writes than the writer themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Like you're always your own worst critic and all that. Yeah, and often you can't clearly see what you have that works and what doesn't work. Mm. Thank you for that. That was, yeah, that was really valuable. And I definitely agree with your friend. Like, Sunburnt Country, I first encountered that on, as we've discussed before, the um, Movie Maintenance Presents episode where you did that. And, yeah, even just the, you know, narrated version of the novella that you originally wrote that became Sunburnt Country. Yeah, it just had, like, this great atmospheric quality about it that was really thrilling so i'm really looking forward to that coming out next year um backing up a bit more to boone shepherd so when we last talked about that you said that you kind of had i don't want to put words in your mouth so feel free to correct me here but you said you had almost conflicted feelings about it because it was something you'd worked on for so long and obviously that with that comes a certain i suppose perhaps boredom for the material that you're working on how do you feel now that the entire trilogy has been out as a complete entity in the world for quite some time? Look, that was a that was a weird experience for me because yeah, well, at the time we spoke, I was like I was kind of a bit fed up with it because you know like I'd worked on it for a long time and you know obviously I wanted to end my story and I wanted it to end on the terms on my terms and I was I was so lucky that that happened and that Bellfrog Books gave it the support to see it through to the end. And so, you know, there was definitely a satisfaction in that. But um, but it's funny because, like, in the in the lead-up to the publication of The Silhouette and Sacrifice, I kind of wasn't really thinking about it that much. Like, I knew it was coming out and everything, and, you know, it was... But, but like, in, I'd kind of already in my head moved on to other projects. And it wasn't until the day before publication that I was walking home from Melbourne Young Writers Studio where I, I do some teaching, and... I just sort of, it just sort of hit me that I wanted to write something about Boone. So I just went to the pub and I sat down and I just wrote this short story that, you know, is in a vague place in the timeline. And it was just kind of a way to say goodbye to Boone. It was like a short story where Boone's being held in the cell. He's going to get hanged the next day because he's pissed off a small town. And, um, and you know, like essentially this little boy comes and visits him and it's kept, and, and the little boy kind of comes and says, you know, do you have any regrets? And the, it's kept a bit vague whether it's happening in or if the little boy is meant to be young Boone or if he's somebody else or what. But, um, but you know, the story was kind of just a way for me to say goodbye to him. And when I finished writing it, like, I sat there and I had tears in my eyes. And I'd gone from, you know, this this place of not not ambivalence, but, like, this place of, um of you know, feeling like I was done with that world to then realising that I was done with the character. And I wrote this sort of last goodbye to him. And then suddenly I was like, oh, no, like, he he's actually gone. Like it, it's like the only way I can put it is that for so long, there was a part of my head where Boone Shepard always was, you know, like, and whether, whether, you know, he came out to do the rewrites on the novels or whether he came out to write a short story or to be working on the TV show or whatever, like he was always there. And then after I wrote that short, it just, it hit me like a ton of bricks that he wasn't there anymore. Like I'd, I'd look at where Boone Shepard was, uh, had been, and, and it was empty. And you know that that it, maybe that sounds esoteric or or weird, but it 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 you can't spend that long writing about a character without that character becoming real to you. And Boone was very real to me. And and suddenly, like 
it, it maybe it was that kind of you know you don't know what you've got till it's gone but but sort of it was the first time i'd ever completed anything in a way that you know there was that there wasn't any room for further editions. You know, like if, if you write a play and you finish a play or you write a novel that hasn't been published yet, like up until, you know, up until the point that it's printed and it's out in the world, you can do anything with it, you know, like you can change it, you can fix it, you can revisit it, you can all of that. But when The Silhouette and Sacrifice came out, with it came the realization that that is the end of Boone Shepherd, you know, and, and, and look, I'm not, I'm not closing the door to revisiting him one day, but right now it feels very much like I said everything I had to say about that character and, I'm very proud of the final book, but that the, the most surprising thing for me was just the, I don't want to say depression, but I, I sank into a really weird, like, like malaise after that final book came out where like for a couple of months there, I was, I was really flat and I was really down and I was really unmotivated. And, and I genuinely think that that was realizing that I had to say goodbye to that character and not being, not being as ready as I thought I was to say goodbye. And, you know, it, it kind of took until, and until things up with sunburnt country and until you know i was like i mean sometimes i wrote about this in a blog recently but sometimes you know the characters who are very real to you and if it, 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 it feels like they're present or they're around it can feel like you know like they're with you or they're over your shoulder or they're walking with you or or something and I, I felt that with boone a lot and it wasn't until you know back in maybe january or or february like right before everything kind of erupted that i was walking home from a friend's house and i just felt like with overwhelming clarity, I felt the presence of Maggie, the protagonist of Sunburnt Country. And I was like, oh, okay, so so now it's you and I. Now we're going on adventures. And yeah, Boone's gone, but now somebody has stepped up to take his place and the next adventure will be with her. And that was really reassuring. It was kind of a realization that, yeah, the Boone adventure is over and that's okay, but there will be something new now and there will be something else. And, you know, I'll never, I'll never forget Boone. It will always... I mean, Boone Shepherd will always be my first novel and there's and that that's never going to go away and you know i learned so much writing those books and i'm really i'm still immensely proud of the trilogy in a way that i didn't think i would be you know i thought a few years would pass and i'd kind of look back on the first one and think oh is it too clumsy is it too simplistic but but i'm i'm still so proud to put boone shepherd up and say it is my first novel i'm so proud that that was my first series and i'm so happy that i got to tell the whole story like because there, there was a there were moments during the run where it looked like there might not be a second one or even a third one. And yet in the end, the story got to be told. It got out there in the world. People got to see the tale I was trying to tell and the point I was trying to make. And now looking back at it, I'm, I haven't really thought about Boone in a long time because I've been so, so buried in sunburnt country, but I'm immensely proud with how it landed and what I ended up with. What do you think is the biggest thing you learned from Boone? Ah, that's a really good question. Um, the biggest thing I learned from Boone is that you can't force things. That you can't, like, that in writing, you know, there were there were moments when I was trying to do rewrites on, I think it was particularly the second one, the third one, and I think I spoke about this last time, but... But, you know, I, I couldn't I couldn't find the voice. I couldn't find Boone and Prometheus voices. I couldn't kind of tap into the the feeling of, like, zaniness that you needed for Boone Shepherd. And then there were a lot of times when I felt that when I was writing it. There were, there were times when, you know, like, I would write, you know, three or four Boone short stories in a row and, like, and you know, a, a screenplay or a TV Bible for the when it was being developed as a TV show and everything and do edits on the novel. And I felt like, you know, I was very much in that world and I had this boundless kind of energy and passion for Boone Shepherd and I could just keep doing it. But then there were times when I just didn't. And... I couldn't even sit down and edit the novel with any with any kind of 
with any, I guess, clarity or any focus because I just couldn't find the voice. And so I sort of realized, well, I've just got to wait for the voice to come back, you know, and I've got to, I've got to just kind of go with something, you know, when it's time to write something, it will be time to write something. When it's time to stop, it will be time to stop. And, and so I kind of learned to let the process guide itself instead of, instead of pushing things during it. And, you know, like I sort of, after, after the first one came out and, you know, there was uncertainty as to whether there would be a second one. And then the same thing happened with the third one. And I was like, you know, am I, am I going to like really push to try to get this out there? Or will I just step back and let, let kind of let whatever happens happen. And that's kind of what I did. And it ended up all working out for the best, I think. So, so yeah, I, I get like, look, maybe if like I have time to think about it, I'll come up with a better answer. But, but for now, that would be what I think I really took away from it. Yeah. Just that, like trying to embrace the voice and not having to like push yourself to. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent. So it seems like you've had a lot of interviews recently. Um, what do you wish more people asked you about? Because I imagine you get asked the same thing over and over. Oh my God. I, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's a really good question. Um, we can come like, back to I that guess, if you need time to think. Yeah. In the past, you know, I, I would have said that I wished more people asked me about Boone. And I think that was probably because I was working on Boone so much, but you know, most people's interest in my work was either my theater work or my podcasting work. And so, you know, and that, that was okay. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not sitting there, you know, railing at people and saying, you know, how did like people, you know, ask what people I, I, all I, I think an interview always works best if the interviewer asks what interests them. And, you know, if I can hopefully answer in a cogent way, but, um, but it's funny because now, now that the Boone Shepherd experience is kind of over, I find myself having very little to say about it. Um, apart from, you know, my personal experience, but, um, but, you know, like, because there was so much I wanted to talk about with the final book and the lead up to it. But now that it's kind of out, I'd be hard pressed to think about what I actually want to say about it, if that makes sense. That does make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, especially because there's probably like arguably less need to sort of promote it now that, you know, it's already out there and, and kind of gaining its own following and stuff. Um, yeah, think, absolutely. Yeah. How do you think your, your writing routine has changed since you've signed the deal with HarperCollins and you know, since all the big stuff has started happening, have, have there been any drastic changes to the way that you go about your writing or editing or has it still remained I mean, more money, or less the same? Um, having money and not having to do freelance is really nice. Awesome. Uh, so, so like, I guess in some ways I have more freedom, like in, in that, you know, I don't, I don't have to worry about, at least for the time being, that, you know, without getting into specifics, like thanks to the financial side of it, you know, I'm, I'm kind of able to relax. You know, I mean, in the past, I've always had to worry about, particularly since I made the choice to live purely as a writer and to make my money doing freelance and doing creative writing, teaching and, and those bits and pieces, um, you know, and, and having like a mismatch of different, different income streams. It's kind of nice to be able to sort of, to be able to just work from home as a writer and not have to worry about, oh, now I have to move on and do that thing or now I have to move on and do that thing or now I have to write that freelance thing I don't want to do or, or whatever it was but in terms of like how much I write or or the focus I give to writing it hasn't really changed that much I mean like even when I wasn't getting paid I was you know treated I treated my work as professionally as I could and I made time to write and I made writing days and I gave myself hours to do it and everything the only difference now is that like I guess I have I have more freedom to to work on it work on everything and I have I guess a bit more time but even that's kind of flawed because now like there's a lot more, like I'm getting a lot more engagements now coming up. Like I was in Sydney last week for a, for a writer's room on a new TV show. So that kind of, you know, took a week out of my, my 
editing and my rewrite schedule for both the book and the screenplay. And then, you know, a couple of other things have come up and, you know, like I've got to, I've got to fly to Sydney like two more times before the end of the month engagements. And, you know, so it's, it's on the one hand, yeah, there's more freedom, but on the other hand, there's more expected of me in my time now. So, so I mean, that, that has certainly shifted things around, but in terms of like drastically, it hasn't really changed my schedule. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So yeah, more, more freedom, but also a lot of that freedom is doing writing stuff, which is its own kind of freedom, yes, I suppose. Exactly. And that's the dream, right? Like I mean, my agent warned me, like when, when we first went in for the meeting with HarperCollins, um, she warned me, she, you know, I was, I was like in my head thinking, you know, with that much money, I can do this and I can do this and I can do this and I can, I can, you know, I, I have this freedom. And I have this ability. And Tara was like, you just have to know that they're going to work you really hard. Like, cause she's, Got um because she represents Dervla Tienen who wrote The Ruin and The Scholar, which are both with HarperCollins. And you know, like there's there's a lot there's a lot that I've learnt from the the kind of early days of the Harper experience that like of what is expected of an author in this day and age in terms of promoting their own books and in terms of building up the right relationships and the right connections. So much stuff that I didn't know previously because the Boone experience was on such a small scale. So so like I'm already kind of starting to see that it's like you know there is a lot expected of your time and. And a friend of mine sums up really well where, like, when when it all happened, he said, you know, don't look at this as winning the lottery. Look at this like a full-time job that you're getting paid for in advance. And this has <laughs> got to be a full-time job for next year. And that's so true. Like, that's how I've been treating it. And, like, sort of as I slowly get an idea of what my schedule is going to be as, for the rest of the year, but also early next year in the lead-up to release um, with conferences, with tours, with all of that. Plus, you know, the UK publication is coming up as well. So I, I am very aware of the fact that, you know, I'm going to have to – I'm going to have to make time for that too. If you don't mind, and we can skip over this if you don't feel comfortable talking about it, but are there any specific tactics that you're using to promote your upcoming book? At at this stage, not so much, but, um, but like, you know, what I, what I kind of learned when I was in Sydney last week, I had lunch with the sales, the sales rep team at HarperCollins and they kind of took me through like a lot of, um, a lot of what goes into selling a book nowadays. And so, I mean, with Boone Shepherd, it was different because most of the promotion was done through, through being involved with movie maintenance. So, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of the promotion came through that. And, you know, the book was predominantly marketed to people who liked movie maintenance for, for better or worse. I, I think that there were, I think there were potentially some mistakes in that approach in retrospect in that, you know, what people wanted from what people, what people who liked movie maintenance might've wanted from me wasn't exactly what, Boone Shepherd offered, and I did I did see that kind of disconnect come up a few times in terms of the responses people had, um, but but now like looking at it now it's it's a lot more about um, going to bookseller conferences about meeting booksellers about meeting the people who are going to be promoting your work and getting out there about doing sort of as much interviews and press as possible about basically just kind of making making everybody aware of the book to kind of create as much early buzz as humanly possible. So, so, you know, kind of like, and HarperCollins have a very kind of clever marketing strategy, but so much of it is going to be for them about, about getting people excited early about, you know, getting, getting excerpts out early, getting advanced copies out early, kind of getting them in the right hands of the right reviewers of the right booksellers of the right influences of the kinds of people who can sort of create, start creating some real buzz. The book. I mean, hopefully the book ends up being good enough to, to warrant that buzz, but, but yes, yeah, so much about it is kind of on the shoulders of the author and on the relationships of the author now. And, and yeah, I guess I'd, I'd never really known that. And it's really interesting to kind of see that's, that's what's so imperative nowadays in terms of how, how this gets approached. In terms of the craft of writing, what do you think is the biggest, 
perhaps lesson or maybe I don't want to use the word difference, but what do you think is the biggest lesson you've learned about the craft of writing over the last year or even just working with your agent and with the editors at HarperCollins and stuff? Have they perhaps like given you any new epiphanies or anything yeah. like that? I had an amazing experience where um, Catherine Milne, who's the um, the head of fiction at HarperCollins, who acquired The Hunted or Sunboat Country, um, she sent me her notes a couple of weeks ago, like on the on the manuscript that they bought, and you know it was 18 pages of like you know just really solid, like really kind of in depth notes, and I read through them all, and as I did, my first thought was this is all solid gold, that this is all so good and it's so helpful and I get to take credit for all of it (laughs) because everybody's going to think these were my ideas. And like, and that was kind of like it, it, I think the big thing I've learned and look, and I learned this with Boone Shepard as well. April Newton who edited the Boone Shepard books was an awesome collaborator, but, but like it, it was, she was awesome for the Boone books because she got the Boone books, you know, and, and, and like having now seen that reinforced by working with Catherine, it is so imperative to have an editor who gets the work and who is as impassioned about the work as you are. Like April was a hundred percent the right person to work on Boone Shepherd and Catherine is a hundred percent the right person to work on the hunted because, because just reading her notes and seeing that like we were on exactly the same wavelength, the ideas that she had, the things that she put forward, which is logical things that had me sitting there thinking, I wish I'd thought of that. Like I, it's so obvious and it's so good and it's going to elevate the book that much. And it, it not even necessarily like major changes, but just enough to kind of really take it to the next level. And, um, and yeah, to just like to, to have the right editor and the right agent and to trust them. So that's the other thing as well is like, um, being with, um, being with Curtis Brown and with Tara Wynn at Curtis, she's, she is she has been such an incredible advocate and supporter and again it just comes down to her getting the book it comes down to her having read the book having got the book having understood where it would sit and who would like it and just kind of you know having having a team in your corner who who are willing to kind of go out to bat for you and the same goes for Jerry Kalajian who sold the film rights in LA you know somebody who just like from the moment I spoke to him on the phone it was just so obvious that he completely understood what we were working with and he completely understood the material and you know he was passionate about it and he advocated for it and he stood up for it and he made it happen and he made sure that when the film deal sold I got the best deal possible and it's just like it it feels it feels so lovely to be supported, you know, like, and to kind of, you know, be surrounded by professional people who know what they're doing and care about your book. And I think that the thing, the lesson I've learned to come back to what you're saying, the lesson I've learned the quickest in this process is just how imperative it is to have that team around you. Yeah. Well, you absolutely deserve it. Like I've read, you know, early versions of, of Sunburnt Country when it was the, the podcast and I've read a lot of other, your other stuff and yeah, like it's awesome that things are starting to explode. Um, Thanks, man. No worries. Tana French, you are a big fan of her. Oh, yes, I am. I'd like to... We probably don't have time for the, like, 4,000-word blog post that you wrote on her, which I <laughs> will link to in the show notes, because it was very interesting. Um, I haven't read any of her stuff. That will probably change. But what do you think is it that appeals to you so much about her writing? Um, actually, just first, like, give a brief overview, so our audience understands who she is and like what she's written and how do you think you're going to sort of implement the lessons you might have learned from her in your own craft Tana French is I mean it's interesting because um at the start of the year I was reading a lot of Patricia Highsmith so I was reading the talented Mr Ripley books which 
which are great in a different way. And then I was kind of alternating between reading those and reading Tana French's Dublin Murder Squad, which a friend of mine had got me onto. And it's funny because um, from a craft perspective, the books couldn't be more different. Like Tana French writes in a very lyrical, very beautiful, very evocative way, whereas Patricia Highsmith is quite sparse and spare and direct. And I love both those writing styles for different reasons. And I guess like my my ideal would be that I would love to be the kind of writer who can marry those two things. Like I would love to kind of write in a way that sort of had that kind of that sparse directness of a Patricia Highsmith, but occasionally kind of tipped into something more lyrical or more striking or more beautiful. And, you know, I was always for a long time, I've been somebody who, um, who kind of, you know, turns my nose up a bit at overwriting or at trying, or, you know, at purple prose or trying to be, and I think, you know, I think there's a difference between like lyrical and beautiful prose and purple over the top, overly showy prose. And Tana French kind of, hits nail on the head perfectly in that like when it's necessary she can bring out the most breathtaking passages of of description or of um of you know a psychological moment the character's having and write it in such a way that you find yourself forced to put, put the book down the other thing that Tana French has which I would love to emulate is an impeccable grasp on character and on how to position characters and on how to build sympathy and empathy for characters who aren't necessarily don't necessarily deserve it um the for and essentially the uh the the thesis or, or the um the premise is that every book is about a different detective in the same murder squad so the first one in the woods is uh about a detective called rob ryan and he gets get this murder in this spot that has real significance to him because 20 years ago when he was a kid him and his friends were playing in this in, in the woods outside of Dublin and his friends went missing and he came out covered in blood with no memory of what happened to his friends, no memory of what they went through, just a complete blank in his head where that should be. 20 years later, he's become a detective and he gets called into investigate a murder on the same spot. So the question is, are they linked? What happened to his friends? You know, and, and, and the, what's, but what's so compelling about In the Woods is the, the journey that Rob goes on because at the start of the book, he insists to you as the audience, he's an unreliable narrator in a lot of respects, and he insists to you as the audience that um, that essentially, you know, uh, uh, that he's fine. You know, like that happened 20 years ago, and that was traumatizing, it was horrible, but I'm fine, I'm over it, it's okay, it hasn't affected me in any way. And then over the course of the book, you slowly realize just how wildly untrue that is, and just how thoroughly broken he is. And what I loved about In the Woods was that it, instead of kind of, you know, having your your quintessential damaged, flawed detective who kind of comes right in the end or can deal with things in the end. Tana French centered the book on a character who is actually quite weak and who, who can't actually deal with what's going on and who thinks he can but can't. And I found that so moving and so compelling. And then the, 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 most, the most savvy choice she made was that, I think she said in interviews that, um, that, you know, she loves crime fiction, but she wanted all of her books to center on a case that was defining for that detective or a case that provided a turning point in the life of the detective. And she rightly said that one detective going through six of those cases would just drive somebody crazy. So instead in the second book, Rob's partner from the first one, Cassie becomes the main character in the third book, Frank Mackey, Cassie, Cassie's boss in the second book becomes the main character in the fourth one, Scorcher Kennedy, who's Frank Mackey's rival in the third one becomes the main character and so on and so on. And they're all written in first person. The writing style changes slightly depending on each one. And not only are they page turning mysteries, but they are amazing psychological portraits 
of a damaged person forced to confront their worst demons. And then she's written another book that came out last year called The Witch Elm, which is her first book that isn't a part of that series. And The Witch Elm was a book that I found utterly haunting. Like, I finished it, and I found the final stretch of that book and where it goes and what it lands on and the ideas it explores to be so chilling and so pertinent and in the way that the best and most challenging art does turns a stark mirror up to myself and my own views on things and to my own kind of my own I guess shortcomings in a way that I found really quite quite um troubling and she just did it like with just so so well and so um with, with such like evident ambition and such such power to her work that you know I I, I mean i think that she's probably the best author I've ever read in terms of her consistency, her malleability, and the fact that she can shift between such different characters in a way that seems almost effortless. And and every book is so thematically strong. Every book is a great mystery. You, you, there's no mistaking one book for the other. They're all very different from each other. And I just I just wish, I mean, she's big in her native island, but she hasn't, you know, she hasn't kind of blown up in the way that she really should in other territories. And I really think that if anybody has not picked up a ton of French book, they are missing out enormously. All right, I have to check it out. One of the things that I definitely noticed in your discussion about Charlotte Van was legacy, right? Like it's a theme that you explore in a lot of your books. And why do you think it appeals to you so much? Why do you think that this notion of, you know, examining the burdens of the past appeals to you as a writer? That's a really good question. And I think, um, I think in a lot of ways I'm, I'm an inherently and potentially pathologically nostalgic person in that, you know, I, um, I, I can really, really struggle to deal with change and I can really, really struggle to deal with, um, with big upheavals where, you know, you realize that one chapter of your life has come to an end. Like whether it's, you're no longer in that job, you're no longer in that relationship, that friendship has ended, um, whatever it may be. And, and, you know, it could be like where you live or it could be, you know, the direction you're taking in life. And, and, you know, for me, like, I, I found, like, I'm somebody who kind of struggled a lot with leaving high school because I was in boarding school, you know, I was, my my friends there were my family in a lot of ways, and then when I left school and I kind of moved on and we all went to different universities, it took me a really, really long time to acclimate to the fact that that had changed. And so for a long time, I was, I was extremely obsessively analysing, you know, why did these friendships fall apart? Why didn't we stay in touch? You know, these friendships obviously weren't as strong as I thought they were. What happened? What did I do? What were my mistakes? What was, and you know, like this, this weird toxic mix of like wanting to go back to before, but kind of realizing you can't, but also like, you know, examining mistakes and trying to learn from them. And, and I think to a degree, we are all shaped by our past. We are all shaped by the things that we regret and we're all shaped by the things that we miss and the things we want to experience again. And, you know, throughout life, I think happiness ebbs and flows. You know, we have times in the past that are glorious and beautiful, and we look back and we say that was one of the best times of our lives, and it can be quite difficult to realize that that time's over. And that was kind of, I think, what I felt leaving school, was that, like, you know, this time when I was surrounded by people who I was so close to, who I valued so much, and I was in this world where I had autonomy because I wasn't at home, and, and like, all of that. And then when that kind of ended, it took me a long time to accept that, and it took me a really long time to kind of accept that, that experience had shaped me, but that experience was over. And the same thing goes for for the mistakes you make in the past and the things that you do that you wish you hadn't done or the things that you do that, you know, maybe hurt somebody or or, you know, or tripped you up in some way or 
or led to things that personally didn't work well for you. And and I'm I'm just I'm so fascinated by the ways in which our experiences, both positive and shape and change us, and how ultimately we are all to a certain extent the product of everything we've ever experienced. So characters grappling with those past experiences, characters grappling with the events that made them who they are, and whether they regret those events, whether they want those events to change, whether they want to be different, and ergo they want their past to be different, that, that's something that I will never not find fascinating. And, and you know, like, part of it is the fact that I've always, I've always been a sucker for a prodigal son story. I mean, like, The Prince of Egypt was my favourite film when I was a kid. <laughs> and I think now and I kind of realised that, you know, so many of the themes that I've explored, like Boone Shepard in particular, it's just like a loosely veiled retelling of the Prince of Egypt. Um, you know, the, the idea of the guy who runs away from his home, who tries to start a new carefree life, who is drawn back when it turns out that his brother is doing horrible things to innocent people and it's partly Boone's fault and he has to step in and change things. You know, it, it, the, the, the prodigal son story I think is so powerful because the, the story of a character who has run away from the past, who has run away from the things that shape them better or worse and then is forced years later to come back and face up to it that I think is is always such a ripe breeding ground for drama, and you know, in in so many ways, whether it's um whether it's Boone's experiences in Boone Shepherd, whether it's a play like uh like one of my plays like Chris Hawkins or Three Eulogies for Tyson Miller, which is coming up next year, or whether it's something totally different like the Maggie series, all in different ways examine characters who are burdened by their past and are trying to come to terms with that and trying to work out you know ultimately how can you move on. To a future that is a blank slate that you can make the most of, but also remember the failures and successes of the past and learn from them. When you reach the end of your life, what do you hope that your legacy will be as a writer? Like, what do you hope that people will, I guess, like remember you for or know you for? And I know that's like a bit of a morbid question and a bit far away, but uh, <laughs> just bear with me because I'm just curious as to kind of see what your thoughts are on that. I would love to be the kind, and I said this to Catherine the other day when I was in Sydney, I would love to be the kind of writer who couldn't be pinned down. I would love to be the kind of writer who, when I look back, I've got, you know, the action pulp of the Maggie series. I've got the kind of the sweeping Shakespearean saga of something like Windmills. I've got the the whimsical adventure of Boone Shepherd. I've got, um, you know, a lot of my theatre work, which is kind of more personal and introspective. Um, all of those things. I, I would love to, to be known for for having successfully straddled not only different genres, but different mediums, you know, having done film, having done television, having done novels, having maybe done comics at some stage, having done podcasting. And, but what I would love is, I would love every genre I move through, I've at least managed to say something powerful and personal and, and meaningful. And I, I guess I would love to just be known as somebody who had managed to, manage successfully to move between those different things and to leave a body of work that explores themes that are powerful to people and do speak to people and do hopefully kind of um kind of resonate in the way that good art always should obviously that's all super ambitious i mean you can you can writing something is only one half the equation people have to read it they have to like it they have to respond to it and there's no way to be sure that that's ever going to happen in the way that you you want it to or you wish it would but but yeah, if I had to kind of say this is my ideal, this is where I'd want to end up, then then very much that. Why do you love writing? When I was a kid, I used to become extraordinarily fixated on the stories I loved. You know, like whether it was Lord of the Rings, whether it was The Prince of Egypt, whether it was Tomorrow When the War Began, whether it was, you know, any, a serious unfortunate event, Harry Potter, any of those things. You know, I would become 
so deeply obsessed with those stories. Like I would want to live and breathe them. I would read them over and over again. I would, the characters would be so real to me. Um, and particularly, you know, if I was growing up, I was having a hard time at school or something, you know, it, it's a cliche, you know, you can talk and there are your friends and there are the characters and there's all of that. But, but there was always a loneliness and a disconnect to that because my love for stories was so much that it became quite confronting to realize that, to, or to, to kind of have to deal with the discomfort of knowing that the degree to which I loved the stories would never quite be enough because the stories would never be mine. You know, like these weren't my characters, these weren't my worlds, these weren't my ideas. And ultimately I reached, I reached a place where I was like, if I want to, if I want to really love and, and connect to a story in a way that I can own and I can, I can, I can inhabit completely, then I have to write my own. And, and to me, it's just that, it's that magic of, you know, of, you know, sitting down and falling through the computer screen and just, you know, of, of telling a story, of, of inhabiting a character, of going on an adventure, of seeing a different world, of exploring ideas that you find meaningful, of, of you know, of, and also just like the superficial thrill of, um, of when, you know, you write a moment that you know people are going to be talking about, or you write a twist that you think is going to shock people. And having, you know, having had the benefit of sitting in theatres while one of my plays is on, and there is, there is nothing quite as satisfying as you know, hearing the gasps when one of your twists lands, or hearing audiences laughing their heads off at like these little quips that you wrote, and kind of having that feeling that you have the audience in the palm of your hands, that feeling of like you know I've I've got them, I'm pulling the puppet strings, and I'm there's, there's a weird like god complex to the idea that like you know I'm almost like guiding <laughs> your emotions. You know, that's a terrible way to put it. I shouldn't have even said that. No, I love but, that. That's great. <laughs> but there but there is something to you know to really. Do I get to go on these journeys but I get to take other people with me and if I'm doing my job right I'm wrapping them up in the stories in a way that hopefully means as much to some people as the stories that I read and loved when I was a kid meant to me uh, and that you know that that's the ideal I mean there's so much about writing that I love and there's so much I could get into it but ultimately it's just it, it just I, I couldn't not do it you know there's no I, I nothing nothing brings me as much joy as much satisfaction as much pride as having written a story that somebody has appreciated. So a couple of quick rapid-fire questions, and then we'll get into a bit of a discussion about Sunburnt Country. What do you think is your most underrated story that you've written that you think is really good and that hasn't been like read or watched or listened to by enough people? Um, I, I guess, you know, it's probably... Um, it's a hard one, but in some ways, there was my play that came out a couple of years ago that everybody who worked on that was did an amazing job and I, I think the commune really deserved and deserved on it given, given not just my work the work the work the director did like it was it was probably at that time and in fact you know what like I think in some ways the commune was probably the best ever production of one of my plays but it really struggled to find audiences. I don't, I don't know why that was. I don't know if it's the time of year it went on. I don't know if it's the subject matter. I don't know what it is like. Um, and unfortunately, you know, like, like Heroes was a similar case where like Heroes didn't do that well in its original theater run, but it did extremely well when it came out as a radio play and extremely well when it went on the one act play circuit and toured and won a whole bunch of awards. So I kind of felt like, you know, Heroes ended up getting its dues and getting the attention it deserved. And the commune never did, and that that was a bit of a shame to me. And it, and unfortunately, it was never done as a radio play either. So, so it didn't. Um, 
unfortunately wasn't able to kind of reach the wider audience that Heroes eventually got to reach or whatever else. So that would be one. The other one, weirdly, given that we've just been talking about it, would be Boone Shepherd 3. Like, I would... Hmm. I, I mean, I haven't heard that much from people about the third Boone Shepherd, and I think part of that is the fact that, obviously, most of the people who read the first one read it through Sans Pants Radio, through the audiobook. And the second one had the audiobook release as well. So I think that made it accessible to a huge chunk of my audiences. And, you know, I mean, the, the third one sold okay, and it's, it's moving okay and everything, but I guess I just haven't heard as much from people about their feelings on it as I was kind of hoping for. So I don't know if that just means that people are finishing it just don't really have anything to say about it, or if people are, um, are finishing it and, um, and and you know, not liking it, or if people just aren't rereading it, or if, or if the audience it's predominantly reaching is kids, which is great, because that's the main audience it's kind of going for. But, you know, I felt like there was a lot of conversation, a lot of discussion about the first two books, particularly the first one, and part of that was due to the way it was released. But I, I guess I would have, you know, I mean, and, and maybe it's still to come, like the book's not even a year old yet, but like maybe um, I would have just liked to have heard more about just like what people thought, what people thought of Boone Shepherd, how did it land for people, were they happy with the ending, did they enjoy it? Did they kind of did they find it satisfying? Did they find it interesting? And that's why it was it was really it was really great to hear your podcast coverage of it because that kind of did give me some of that of listening and being like, okay, cool, it did it at least for you, it did work. Like, you know, it did it did hit the beats I wanted to hit. It did land in the way I think I wanted it to land. And so that was really nice, kind of listening to that and and you know, thanks for covering it on the show. And um but but yeah, I guess I guess yeah, if there was anything it would just like I just kind of, you know, probably wouldn't have minded that to kind of get a bit more a bit more attention just because I was proud of it and I was proud of it as the conclusion to a lot of what was set up in one and two and I don't think you really get the full story unless you read the whole trilogy absolutely and yeah I'll link to that podcast episode and I definitely feel that the third one was for me my favorite in the series so yeah I'm sure that'll get there um what story have you read recently that surprised you the most uh the witch elm by Tana French witch elm Um, cool because it just it it that book like what it it was i would say that the witch elm was a flawed masterpiece in that it's not her best book in terms of you know hitting it's a bit uneven at parts and it's a bit kind of um thematically unfocused at parts but the sheer ambition of what she was grappling with and where it went in the third act in a way that was so deeply disturbing and yet somehow so inevitable at the same time it was i wouldn't go as far as say it was a twist but it was a turn that when i got i got to it i was reading it thinking i can't you this is not what i expected and this is really disturbing and is really quite chilling and it was a book that even though like i I maybe didn't enjoy it as much as i'd enjoyed some of her other books it certainly stuck with me a lot more than some of the ones that i'd enjoyed more on a surface level what are three words that you would like people to use to describe your writing? Oh, God, that's that's tough. That's um, <laughs> that's really tough. Uh, surprising would be one. Like, I'd really like, I'd really like to think that you know, I, I write things that maybe maybe don't go the way somebody expects, or you know, maybe turn turn some characters and some ideas on their heads in ways that uh, um, surprising. Uh, weirdly, I would say like maybe easy, like in in the easy to read, like you know, you can just tear through it and it's not a struggle or it's not too dense um and uh and gripping obviously i think every author you know every author subconsciously or not or not so subconsciously wants to be told that their work's gripping or that what they're writing you know grabs an audience and has a hold on them because ultimately that's what we want because that's why we write is that you know we 
we read books that gripped us and enraptured us and completely drew us in when we were younger. And, and you know, I mean, I think ultimately I could kind of take or leave all the other adjectives, but if I knew that my writing was gripping people, then that's kind of enough to be satisfied with, you know? Like, you can't really ask much more than that as a, as a storyteller. How do you craft that level of suspense and, and grippingness in your own writing? Can you think I, of anything specific you do, or is it just more I, of a subconscious thing? I interrogate my stories... And I try to make my work very lean. I try to interrogate everything and and try to make sure that there's nothing in there that doesn't need to be there. And to make sure that, you know, um, the stakes are either high from a personal standpoint or from a life and death standpoint. And um, and to kind of, you know, have have like little cliffhangers at the end of every chapter, you know, have like little twists and turns and and explosive events here and there. And, um, and you know, I try to kind of, as much as I can, I try to take the audience on a roller coaster ride, you know, because that... That's sort of what what I always wanted from a book was, you know, when you don't know what's going to happen next and you want to be surprised by things and you want to be taken to interesting places. And so, you know, I, I try to kind of use the tricks that I learned from writers I really admire of, you know, keeping big questions in the air, keeping mysteries at play, keeping, you know, a sense of danger and menace here and there, kind of giving giving haunting little glimpses of the answers to questions that maybe, you know, the audience is kind of grappling with and desperately wants to know where it's going to go. Um, and and not and, and hopefully not explaining too much, like leaving some things up to the audience's imagination, or leaving some questions unanswered in a way that hopefully keeps them turning over in the audience's head afterwards, and and during the process of reading it as well. Of oh, right, yeah, but but I guess ultimately, ultimately every writer, as as experienced as somebody might be, or as much training as somebody might have, we're all ultimately kind of flying blind, right? You know, we all it's impossible to anticipate what is going to land for somebody and what is not going to land for somebody, and and what the stories that you write that you might think are amazing might not be what your audience or your publisher or your agent thinks are amazing. And that's, you know, so ultimately I think we all just try our best to try to, to try to just tell a good yarn. You know I mean? You can, you can be, we can be pretentious about it. We can sort of, you know, talk about, talk about crafts and all of that. But at the end of the day, like if it's not making people turn pages, then what's the point? Absolutely. Who are those writing heroes that you like inspired you to begin writing or you, you look up to now, apart from obviously Tanner French, who are the John people Marsden. who... Um, oh, yeah, keep going. John Marsden's the big one. J.K. Rowling, John Marsden. I mean, J.K. Rowling, I just think is... And I, I like I, I get really fed up with people um, criticising J.K. Rowling for, you know, for retroactively adding too much or for... Same. For all kinds of stuff. And I get I get annoyed with it because I'm like, you know, it, it makes me so... And it's similar with John Marsden. I might be a bit controversial here, but it's, you know, every time J.K. Rowling does something that, you know, makes people go, oh, you know, that wasn't that wasn't very woke or whatever. I mean, like, I think she's in an impossible position where she wrote a book series that she started in the 90s, and yes, she didn't include that much diversity or or any of that, but, you know, at the time, it wasn't in the public eye. Yeah, she had a blind spot there, and that's... And, like, I think it's pointless to retroactively criticise her for that because, yeah, the point can be made, but the books are out now, and then J.K. Rowling kind of ends up in a situation where she sort of, you know, is tweeting out saying, you know, well, this character's ethnicity is this, or this character was this, or whatever... And yeah, maybe it's a misguided retroactive attempt to sort of to add diversity that wasn't there. But I mean, do you blame her when she's under that much pressure and is copying that much criticism from people about it? I mean, ultimately, I say J.K. Rowling is somebody who has given more to the world than most people. She's donated millions to charity. She has written books that have inspired generations. And, you know, like we have to be... We have to kind of, like, at a certain point, what do you expect from somebody? Like, what more could you possibly ask from somebody? It's like, all right, she follows someone a bit dodgy on Twitter, or, you know, she says something that's a bit tone deaf. But at the end of the day, like, 
she's she is still trying and she's still telling stories that enrapture and excite and thrill so many people i mean she's probably the best popular storyteller ever in terms of you know just her understanding of narrative of how to craft narrative and how to do it in ways that are so compelling and touching and moving and enrapturing i don't know i, I just think she's become a she's become a punchline in a way that i think is cruel and a way that i think is utterly unfair um and and john marsden as well you know i mean he he recently was in the news for making some unsavory or some allegedly unsavory comments about bullying and about sort of suggesting that uh, uh, it, it wasn't actually what he said but you know he in his new book he basically he alludes the fact that bullying isn't always this targeted horrible thing it could just be you know so if, if a kid says or does something that annoys his peers and the peers respond badly to that then you know a lot of the times it, it's that and you know I don't 100% agree with what he was saying, but I also know for a fact, having been to his writing camp, that when I was 12 years old and I was being bullied and I broke down in tears in front of John Marsden, he comforted me, he spoke to me, he gave me advice and he cared and he listened. And so all the people out there who are, you know, like having a go at him, again, not only has he written books that have inspired generations, but he has opened two schools. He's done huge amounts of youth work. He's done more to help the youth of this country than so many people. Like, I just think people on Twitter need to shut up sometimes, you know? <laughs> so and cool. So, you know, like, yeah, John Marsden, J.K. Rowling, Thomas Harris, obviously we spoke about him last time, uh, Daniel Handler, Lemony Snicket, uh, so many of those people were the, were the heroes I had growing up who I think really helped shape my own voice and my own ideas. So moving on to Sunburn Country now, because I'm conscious of your time, so we'll probably wrap this up soon. For those who aren't aware of what Sunburnt Country slash The Hunted is, I always keep calling it Sunburnt Country. I need to change that. So do um, I, and it's going to be it's gonna be The Hunted, so I need to get used to the other one. But I mean, it's also potentially going to be called Sunburnt Country in the UK and as a film. So I think it's currently okay to veer between the two. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I probably have to get used to calling it The Hunted predominantly. Great. So The Hunted slash Sunburnt Country, what is it about for people who aren't familiar? Okay, so the story, so even if you did hear the original version on Sansnet's radio, which is, has changed a lot, that, that's still kind of, some of that material is certainly part of the novel now, but in, it's, it's not the bulk of the novel. It's more like, um, and it's mostly been like rewritten and reconfigured, but it's sort of flashbacks that kind of are peppered throughout the book. But basically, The Hunted starts on a desolate stretch of highway out in the middle of nowhere, Australia. The character we meet, Frank, is sort of a middle-aged man who essentially has a little bit of a rough, dodgy past. And in some ways, he's kind of essentially serving penance out there. Like, he's by himself, he's enjoying the solitary... Well, not enjoying, but, you know, he's he's kind of got a self-sought solitude that he exists within... But his granddaughter, who has been causing trouble at school, has recently been sent to stay with him. And so there's a lot of tension there because, like, Frank and the granddaughter don't really have very much to say to each other. The granddaughter's kind of having a rough time at school and she doesn't know how to connect to her grandfather. She doesn't really want to be there. Frank is doing his best but doesn't really want her there. And he's kind of doing it because he's trying to reconnect with his family but, you know, is scared that it's not... So, you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of, you know, tensions and stuff that's set up right at the start. And suddenly into this mix in the very first chapter... Frank's in the roadhouse with his granddaughter and with a couple of people who've stopped on the way to get some fuel, and suddenly out the front of of the roadhouse, this battered car just comes careening up the front, screeches to a halt, the front door opens, and this girl gets out. And she's completely covered from head to foot in mud and blood. She's limping badly, and she's dragging a shotgun behind her. And all she says is, don't call the police. And then she collapses. So the characters are kind of like, what do we do? They bring her in and they sort of, you know, they're trying to work out like what, whether they should call the police. They pick up the phone and all the phone lines have been cut. And they're slowly thinking, we, what is going on here? What situation have we found ourselves in? 
And as they kind of try to look after this girl and try to find out what's happened to her, at night falls from every direction around them come headlights that basically surround the roadhouse and plunge them into a siege. So essentially the story is about these characters, this disparate bunch of characters who don't have much reason to like or trust each other, stuck in this horror situation together and trying to basically survive the night and trying to work out who is this girl, what has she done, why are these people after her, and what are these people capable of. And so throughout this happening, we have flashbacks to what what actually happened to this girl and where she came from and what led to this situation. So it's it's fast, it's frenetic, it's quite short, it's designed to be the kind of thing you can burn through in a night or two, and hopefully if I've done my job right, it'll be a white-knuckle thrill ride that will make you scream at the pages at a few pertinent moments. Excellent. I'm so pumped for it. When does it come out? It comes out July next year. July next year. So awesome. just, just under a year away from now. That's great. Well, Gabe, I'm going to wrap it up now. Thank you so much for a great chat. I really enjoyed this. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? Anything else that you're working on for the future that you want to have a discussion about? Um, no, not, not really at this stage. Um, my, I've got one of my plays is on at Melbourne Fringe again this year, The Critic. It was on before in 2016. It did really well. And it's coming back with a new cast and a new director. And I haven't really seen any of it yet, but I'm really excited. That opens, I think, on September the 9th at the Butterfly Club as part of Fringe. But if you look it up, it'll, it'll come up. But, um, but yeah, so that, that should be really good. The cast are great. The director's great. It's funny. It's fast. It's very different to Sunburnt Country. Um, and that, that's really the only other thing I've got coming up at the moment that, uh, that at least that I can talk about. Awesome. Thanks so much, Gabe. See ya. Thanks, Jed. All the best. Thanks so much for listening to the Novel Analyst Podcast. I had a real blast recording this episode, and if you want to listen to that other episode that Gabe and I talked about, the one where I interviewed him last year, you can go to novelanalyst.com and then scroll down to episode number five. I'll also have the link to this in the show notes if you just want to click that. And you can listen to us talk about where he was at a year ago with his writing. Uh, We talk about Thomas Harris, who wrote Silence of the Lambs and other stuff and a bunch of other cool writing related things. So if you really enjoyed this episode, be sure to go check that out as well. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.